Brothers, sisters, be filled with the Spirit. Esteban, I owe you so much thanks and gratitude this morning. I also owe you an apology to pick a passage that's not only so lengthy, but so controversial. And to ask a brother that I have only just met, you are a good man. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you for inviting me into the sacred time of worship. It's an honor. The passage that we read, it sounds shocking to our modern and certainly Western ears. It's not without controversy. And I would argue this morning that there is one line in this passage that we read that is utterly shocking. And that should stir some controversy within the church. And that line has nothing to do with husbands, wives, children's parents, slaves, or masters. It comes from chapter 5, and it is the command. In fact, in Greek, it is an imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. Partly because of the imperative of this verse. Who in here gets to command the Spirit? In fact, it is the only place in all of Scripture where this command is given. Other places were commanded to not grieve the Spirit, to mind the Spirit, but never to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is wild and free and beyond our control or manipulation. Now, I'm a good Wesleyan, brothers and sisters, and so I believe in participation in the perichoretic life of the Holy Trinity, amen? But I do not control the Spirit of God. The Spirit moves where the Spirit will, when the Spirit will, how the Spirit will. Be filled with the Spirit, there have been seasons in my life where this command feels utterly unfair, where I have cried out to God, Oh Lord, if these dead, dry bones could command the divine spark of life to come and to fill me, I would, but I cannot. The Spirit is wild and free. And so it's no wonder that life in the Spirit sometimes looks a bit messy, and perhaps you might even describe it as chaotic to the world. The kind of chaos that the Christian community seemed to live in is probably the reason that this pastoral epistle tells people to watch the way that they walk to mind how it is that they are walking, not as unwise, but as wise, because people are watching. And perhaps people are even claiming that there is a bit of chaos to this walk. And perhaps I, I look at the words that they command them not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, and I wonder if this chaotic life in the Spirit, this messy, wild kind of living of the Christian community looked a bit tipsy to the world around them. Now, I'm a Nazarene, so I'm careful with this one. <laughs> but can I tell you the story? The story of the ancient world, the, the very world in which God called forth into being, the world that was once just darkness over which the Spirit of God hovered. The ancient world, well, 
before the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the ancient world was organized and ordered in its own kind of messy way. Most civilizations, societies, tribal groups organized themselves around households. And the father often was the head of those households. Different communities and societies, that was not always the case. The Israelite people are an interesting example of this because while they were organized under households of the father, the Jewish fathers, known as the, the people who served the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know this, yes? They're organized under the fathers of Israel, yet we know that there are some places where the Jewish lineage also throws some mothers in there. They were significant enough to make it into the lineage lines. And we also know that while most of the time leadership in the Israelite world was given to the fathers of the families, there were times where women like Deborah were called upon to lead the nation and the armies of Israel. And other ancient societies were the same case, that this was not necessarily a strict rule. It was simply one of the most convenient ways for groups of people to organize and order themselves. But then Rome came along. Don't we Christians, we love to hate Rome, don't we? Then Rome came along. And Rome set out to order and organize the entire world under one ruler, one head, one father. And we know that, that they called this the patera familia, the families of the father. And the father was Caesar. And so the order went something, uh, the, the, the order of the Roman household had to be enforced strictly because there could only be one father. And so all of the households of the entire Roman Empire must be ordered under the one father of that household. And so everybody in that household would submit to the father as the father submitted to Caesar. Wives submitted to the father. Children submitted to the father. Slaves submitted to the father of the household. And this was, in many ways, a really convenient way to organize and order things. It was very efficient in many ways. In fact, there's one story that um, an ancient historian records for us. There's a man living in a village, and his wife is out of line. She's making trouble in the household, talking back, disagreeing, so the father of that household, this historian records, is, is beaten within an inch of her life. He comes right to the line of murder and draws back just an inch. And his neighbors, so record history, praise him for keeping the peace of the community. Many of us know that this is the picture of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. When every man, woman, and child, slave, and master was ordered and organized under the one father who is Caesar, it brought what seemed to be a kind of peace and order to the world. The Pax Romana. One day this guy named Jesus came along. You may have heard of him. He was the eternal son of God in flesh and blood. And he ate with tax collectors, and he talked with women. In fact, he called them to be his disciples. 
Gentile women, Jewish women, it didn't matter. He touched leopards. Le I've been reading too many children's books. <laughs> he touched lepers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he healed the sick. He lifted the heads of the lowly. He, he, he came and sat with outsiders. He called children, children to gather around his feet as if they too were disciples. He taught servants and slaves. He fed the hungry. He walked on the water, and nothing would ever be the same again. A man named Saul had an encounter with this Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on a road one day. Saul would never be the same again. Saul changed his name to Paul. Paul himself was one of the fathers of Rome. He had Roman citizenship, and he was a father of Israel, which made him one of the fathers of the Patera Familia. And yet, this man writes these letters to other Christian communities and is sending them all over the Roman world. In every corner where we find the so-called Pax Romana, Paul is writing and sending these letters. And since we are in a seminary today, I will say, regardless of the authorship of the book of Ephesians, it is thoroughly from the heart of Paul. And he's writing these letters, and, and in these letters he's saying things to women like, you don't have to worship the gods that your husband worships. He writes letters to young men telling them, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. It's set an example. In fact, he even writes a letter to a slave master asking that this slave master receive the slave back into his household. Only, only Paul, a Jewish father, one of the fathers of the Patera Familia, Paul calls this slave his brother and asks the master to receive the slave back, but not as a slave, but as a dear brother. And all of this, I imagine, to the Roman world, established under the Pax Romana, under the Patera Familia, it all looked like a kind of chaos. It was wild, and it was messy and chaotic to the world. These Christians, well, they looked like anarchists. They looked like people who had completely thrown order off of themselves. They did not respect the Patera Familia. These wives didn't worship the gods that their husbands worshipped. Their young people were acting as though they were already leaders of the community, and their slaves were being treated as though they were brothers of the household. This was chaos, disturbing the Pax Romana. And because they were so radical, so countercultural, the world looked at them and said, this is not peace, this is not order, this life filled with the spirit you talk about, this is wild. Even more so, at their gatherings, much like we will do today, they were known to share a common loaf of bread and to share a common cup to pass that around, and I wonder if perhaps on more than a few occasions, 
these Christians who were known to being accused of being drunk. I wonder if perhaps there were occasionally a few Christians at the table that took a few too many swigs of the communion cup and gave a bad rap to the Christian community. And so the Roman world, they, they looked at these Christians and they not only called them chaotic, they called them sloppy drunks. This was what they saw of this so-called life in the spirit that the Christian community writes and talks so much about. And so Ephesians, in this wonderfully pastoral way, tells them to look carefully then how they walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, life in the body of Christ is certainly not anarchy. Anarchy is actually, uh, it comes from two Greek words that literally means without a ruler. Anarchy seeks to pull rulers down from their seat of authority. Pull them down, anyone who is placed over them. Anarchists would have nothing and no one ruling over them. Submission is a dirty word to anarchists. There is simply no place for it. And yet Paul... This pastoral epistle, it admonishes the Christian community to submit to one another out of their reverence, out of their respect, their love for Jesus Christ. Submission, submission, oh, I know it's a dirty word for anarchists, but isn't it a four-letter word for us as well? Oh, I just... Technically speaking, it bums me out. And in the words of my daughter's favorite philosopher, Elsa of Arendelle, there is no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, so let it go. We've got a mom here today. And truly, these, in many ways, are the philosophers of our time. The difference is, is that Christians, Christians aren't living in that kind of a freedom. Christians aren't looking to pull anyone down. Only empty people have to pull others down to fill their empty soul. But Christians, we are full. We are full of the Spirit. We are not empty. We're not interested in dragging others down. We might not bow before Caesar, but we do know, as we sang so beautifully this morning, how to bend a knee. Because there is one Father, one Spirit, one hope of our call. There's one Father, as Ephesians tells us earlier in the epistle, there's one Father before whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name. So submission is not a dirty word for Christians so long as Christ is exalted. And of course, the emphasis here in this whole household code, this em the emphasis here is on verse 21, that we submit to one another out of our love for Christ. If we have some Greek fans in the house, and I see Ryan Griffin back there, so I know that we do. We have some Greek fans in the house, you know that in the very following verse where it talks about wives and husbands, the Greek verb is omitted there. The most literal translations would just be wives to husbands. 
And of course, it's implying the verse from earlier. But in this sense, in saying wives to husbands, every believer is called to submit to another believer in the same way that a Roman wife would submit to her husband. Because they are all submitted to Jesus Christ, their Lord. This is a kind of mutual submission that glorifies God the Father. My husband and I had the privilege of co-pastoring for three and a half years. When we were first called to be co-pastors, people started asking us, oh, that's great, that sounds awesome and interesting. What is that going to look like? To which we would reply, we haven't found out yet. And pretty much every day that was the story, figuring out what this looked like, this, this messy model of leadership where we submitted to one another as Christ was glorified. And the truth of it is that in those years of co-pastoring together, we got the question so many times, so tell us, who's really in charge? And there were days when I wanted to say, trust me, it's me. And I'm sure that there were days that my husband was frustrated and wished that it were him that were in the lead. And yet there was something about that model of life and ministry that did not allow us to impose a kind of structure that was about control and manipulation, but was always about mutual submission. You see, Paul... And, and this, he goes on to do something incredible with the household codes. He re-narrates the household codes for us in a rather ingenious kind of a way. He takes the very structure that is common throughout the Roman world, and he re-narrates it, only there's a big difference in this re-narration. And the difference is, is that the commands are not only given to wives and children and slaves, the commands are given to all who find themselves in these Christian households. To all who find themselves submitting to Christ. This re-narrated code. In fact, perhaps one of the most radical statements then is in chapter 6, verse 9, where masters are told to treat their slaves in the same way that slaves are instructed to treat their masters. This is radical. And it reminds them because there is one kurios, one Lord, and he is in heaven. Life filled with the Spirit is organized under one Father in one family, submitting to one another as we submit to Christ. The Roman world might have looked at that and called it anarchy, but this life filled in the Spirit, well, it can be a bit chaotic sometimes. So Paul tells them to, be, to look carefully how they walk but to show the world that they are not anarchists, they are not without rulers, and that submission is no dirty word because they are very pleased to submit to one another as they all submit to Christ together. I don't know if you're aware, but I, I see a lot of what we might call millennials in the room today. I read a blog post yesterday that told me that I am an old millennial. That's nice of them. I work with college students. They are, I guess, the young millennials, Generation Z. We're not sure yet. We haven't figured it out. And I sense that there's a great deal of anxiety in the church these days about what the church leadership structure, 
will look like when a new generation of ministers of the gospel take their place leading and serving the church. I sense that there's a bit of anxiety as, as to what that's going to look like because I don't know if you're aware, but the millennial generation has developed a bit of a reputation. The reputation is that millennials don't want to submit to anyone or anything. Don't want to be bound to any expectations. Will only take a job if it is tailored to their unique giftings and abilities. And want education only so long as it makes them feel good about themselves. That they're more concerned with quality of life than with hard work. And I know that these characteristics are not always fair. And yet, and yet, I'm reminded of life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is not anarchy. It's not a lack of submission. It's not that we don't know how to submit. It's that we collectively submit to one God and Father. But here is where I think the world desperately needs this younger generation that sees leadership in a very different way. Structure and order looks very different. Here's where I think that the world desperately needs this generation of leaders and servants. You see, I believe that there are times when the wild nature of the Spirit is calling upon the people of God to bring holy chaos to the doorstep of injustice, to disorder the organization of this world that would silence the marginalized, that would oppress the voiceless, that would maintain a status quo that is only good for the pateras. I have a dear friend named Rondi. Rondi uh, is an ordained minister of the gospel, but she spent most of her life working with CEOs, training leaders, training people how to use good leadership technique, how to implement good structure and order in their organizations and their companies. One day she was at a presentation, she goes to a lot of these things and hearing someone talk about women who are trafficked into the sex trade, held as slaves. Rondi said it was one of those moments in her life where she undeniably heard what she would describe as an almost audible speaking of the Spirit to her, in which the words came so clearly as one of the speakers described a particular woman that they were working to rescue. The voice of the Spirit said, if she is free, then how can you be? Or I'm sorry, if she is not free, then how can you be? And Rondi was convicted. And that very week, she set to work organizing a nonprofit in which she would leave the company and organization that she had worked to build from the ground up, start something completely new, and join the ranks of thousands who are a part of a movement to end the sex trade across the globe. She works specifically in Tennessee, rescuing women who have been trafficked, who were held in slavery, rescuing them and fighting in the court systems and, and fighting on the streets of Tennessee to protect these women. She joins the ranks of thousands that are bringing a holy chaos 
to a world that is organized and ordered by pimps and brothels. I believe that this is a generation when we see children that are caught in systems that, that neglect the poorest and the most vulnerable among us, that we will bring a holy chaos into our school districts and into our communities. I believe that this might just be a generation where wherever we see women being treated as objects of lust instead of subjects of God's holy love, that we will bring a holy chaos to those systems of disorder. And that wherever God's children of any kind are being bullied, misused, abused, wherever the systems of this world profit from the neglect of God's beloved, wherever institutions of order silence the margins and call it peace, we will bring holy chaos. But without submission, chaos only breeds more chaos. And this kind of stirring of the Holy Spirit, this kind of holy chaos and holy disordering, it is always meant to bring about a new order. Where we are, in fact, reordered and reorganized under a new patera familia, under a new reign of peace. It's not that we don't submit, but we submit to one another. And this kind of order, it is not about control or manipulation. That is not the form of leadership that the wild nature of the Holy Spirit is breathing into the church. This kind of order is not about control. Because this is the order that we see in a life of Christ. It is the ordering of Christ himself who was given up, laid down his life for the bride, the beloved, the church. Not to control or to manipulate her, but to open a way in holy love where the people of God might be so filled with the Spirit that the world would know that there is one Father from whom every family on heaven and earth derive its name. And that Father will be glorified. My prayer for you is that you would be filled with the Spirit bringing holy chaos to the doorsteps of injustice as you incarnate the body of Christ in this world and bring glory to our one Father.